0: Well, last Monday, the Federal Attorney-General released two long-awaited papers reviewing the current Privacy Act and draft legislation for an online privacy code that will impact social media platforms, but also data brokerage services. In other words, the huge market in trading customer and audience data, which means pretty much everyone in the marketing supply chain. Now, I know these themes are not the sexiest for an industry intrigued by who's gone where or won something, but what's brewing on the legislative front at the moment will shape much of what brands, tech platforms, data houses, media, and agencies will be allowed to do in tracking, targeting, and turning prospects and customers into bucks. So with us today for their top-line take on what's buried in 300-plus pages of reports this week... And what the early implications look like for marketing, media, tech and agencies and consumers are some really smart people that know more than most of us collectively on this front. All of them in one way or another have been actively involved in the lead up to the Attorney General's privacy related reports released this week. Lauren Solomon is the CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. She's been very involved in both the ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry. Her consumer research on privacy and personal information are cited regularly by the ACCC's Chair Rod Sims and in the ACCC reports. And she's been heavily involved in submissions to the Privacy Act Review. Johnny Lauren is the former Deputy New South Wales Privacy Commissioner, Anna Johnston, who's now principal at advisory firm Salinger Privacy, The Guardian's Managing Director, Dan Stinton, and Peter Leonard, Professor of Practice at UNSW's Business School, advisor to Gilbert and Tobin, and principal at Data Strategies. Welcome to you all. And this is deep and meaningful and fascinating for me, if no one else. So thanks for joining. Lauren, to you first, before we get to your early takeouts from the Privacy Act discussion paper. As a consumer advocate, what's wrong with the system now in terms of how industry collects and uses personal data, and what does your work with consumers tell you they're concerned about? And I think they're very concerned based on some of your research. Uh, Welcome, Lauren, and give us your, your initial sense.
1: Thanks, Paul, and thanks for having us today. Look, I think where we come from in all of these discussions are really looking at this from the perspective of consumers. What are they telling us that they want and need? What are they telling us about their experiences? And what are they telling us about what they expect the law to protect them from? And there's really three sort of key planks that has come through in our research over and over again. And the first is centered on choice and control. And the second is around the level of comfort with the current practice. And the third one is really around fairness and safety in these general expectations that people will be treated fairly and safely by companies and the data practices that they are implementing. And so when we go to choice and control, the overwhelming findings there are really that we all know privacy policies and terms and conditions aren't enabling meaningful choices. That's a problem for consumers and it's also a problem for competition. So our research found 94% of Australians saying they haven't read privacy policies that apply to them and we all know they're far too long. It's simply we don't have the physical time, even if we wanted to read through every single one of them, to really meaningfully understand what's going on. Now... The issue with that is there's a lack of meaningful information in the policies themselves. So even if you tried to read them, the lack of clear and transparent disclosure about what's going on is an issue. The length and the complexity is an issue. And there's no real way for consumers to actually even express their preferences if they wanted to. And what I mean by that is that in most cases, it's a take it or leave it proposition. And really, this is all about, you know, even though 70% of consumers are saying that they're accepting terms, even though they're not comfortable with them, when we ask them why, three quarters are saying it's because it's the only way to access the product. There isn't actually any way for consumers to express the preferences that they have and to acquire products that meet those preferences because it's a take it or leave it proposition. So that's a choice and control piece. The second piece is around the discomfort with current practice, so we see this consistently above 90% of Australian consumers saying they're just not comfortable with how their personal information is currently being collected and shared, and they're pretty disempowered to do anything about it. And I can kind of, you know, go into a bit of the detail around that a bit later. The other aspect is that they want government to do something about it. So over 90% of Australians actually want government to intervene and protect them from the way that their data is currently being shared and used. They want more meaningful ways to receive information about what's being collected, but they also want protection against misuse. And really, that's kind of what's really at the heart of a lot of the reforms that we look at, both from the Privacy Act perspective, Consumer Protection perspective, and Competition perspective.
0: Just to clarify, we have perpetual debate across the industry about what consumers say they want and what they do, and some of the points made by sort of the tech companies and marketing services companies is that people say they may not be comfortable, but they are using the services. They're happy to hand over their information. Your point there is that there's no option for them not to, but it's, it's this level of concern that you talk about in your research that consumers are saying it's real and they want something done about it. That's that's the key point you've you've taken to government then, I assume.
1: Absolutely, it is real, and they do want something done, and they're feeling very disempowered. So, this idea that people say one thing and do another—the behavior—is there because there is no other option. If there was other options, maybe consumers would be choosing different products and services. And that's a real problem for competition too. So if there aren't meaningful choices, consumers actually aren't able to get in there and the the market actually isn't able to deliver the sorts of products and services that consumers want and need. So it's about how do you get data used in a way which is actually pro-consumer, pro-community, used in the public interest, and also make sure that we have the appropriate guardrails to protect against misuse.
0: Okay, so let's go to at least the Privacy Act in this discussion paper that was issued earlier this week, Lauren. From what you've read so far, is it ticking the consumer protection boxes you're seeking and what could that mean for companies and what they won't be able to do that they are now?
1: So it's a step in the right direction probably from my perspective. So I'm going to go straight to the Privacy Act because ultimately from our perspective, that is the core of, of this. And When it comes to control, choice and consent, that is what we, we are talking about. That being said, though, we are looking at these reforms in the context of how you enshrine fairness and safety in other parts of the law. And for us, when we think about things like fairness, for example, we are thinking about things like unfair trading prohibition. So really removing the ability for companies to use quite manipulative or extractive practices that consumers don't necessarily or isn't necessarily being used in consumers' best interests.
0: Could you, push just on that, Lauren, could you break it, give us an example of what you're talking about there?
1: Yeah, sure. So in some of our research, and it's quite well documented, you know, that there are practices being used by firms to extract data over and above potentially what consumers actually want to be sharing, often they're called dark patterns, which are behavioural, I guess, interventions that are actually nudging consumers to hand over more than they otherwise would want to or be required to, or it's actually inhibiting genuine choice and empowerment because of the way that screens might be designed, because of the way that flows might be designed And it's really inhibiting consumers actually being able to make the genuine choices that they want to. And those sorts of practices are quite unfair because it does mean that that it is limiting the power of consumers to actually have their preferences met in the marketplace. So that's kind of the way we think about unfair practices. In this context, but there's many other examples as well. In terms of the actual Privacy Act review and the recommendations that are are coming forward, obviously the changes to the definition of personal information we think are really quite important and that comes through quite strongly in our research. So we see over 80% of consumers saying they don't want things like their unique IDs shared with other parties. They don't want their phone contacts and other health information or inferred information being shared with other parties as well. And so that tightening of the definition is really important from our perspective.
0: Just on that, Lauren, what has been sort of proposed in the current discussion paper around the definition of personal information, unique IDs, is it geo-tracking as well? What else is in there that kind of says it's going to tighten up?
1: Yeah, look, it says basically that that you can provide for a non exhaustive list of technical information. That's where they're defining it. At the moment, they've offered things like this could include an identifier such as a name and an identification number, location data, and online identifier. So these are the sorts of matching tools that we know exist. And so that does look like we are headed in that direction. When it comes to informed choice and control, what we talk about there is transparency, accessibility, and comprehension. So what we know is the way information is presented in privacy policies at the moment is not aiding genuine comprehension or transparency. So some of the changes that are being proposed in terms of disclosure requirements there are quite important. The purpose for the data collection, the third parties who the entity might be disclosing it to, those sorts of things are welcome. The other thing I actually really like is that we're getting to standardisation and comprehension testing. We find that's really important in every market. So basically, instead of having a 20 page document, you're coming down to something that's much shorter, simpler, you can use icons potentially, but it's tested in terms of readability it is going to be accessible, it is going to be comprehensible to an average person who might be reading that statement to understand what's going on. Now, we say that knowing the complexity of what sits behind this, and I don't underestimate the challenge associated with doing that, but that's certainly a lot better than when we're at, at the moment where we've got very vague terms, very broad brushstroke ability for business to really enact a whole range of different data sharing without consumers actually really understanding what on earth that means or whether it's being used in their, in their best interests.
0: Well, there's a a first-line take. Thank you for that, Lauren. Anna, welcome. And what's your early reading from the Privacy Act discussion paper?
2: Thanks, Paul. So I agree with Lauren, definitely steps in the right direction. So overall, some pretty good, sensible ways to strengthen the Privacy Act. In particular, I think the Attorney General's Department's really grappled with ways they can use the Act to crack down on those kind of unfair practices that Lauren talked about and the kind of data extractive, exploitative industry. So overall, some good factors. I think there's a few things that need tweaking or fixing and there's some big ticket items that they've actually not yet grappled with. They've just asked for more consultation on a few things. So they've kicked the can down on the the road on grappling with the main exemptions to the Act, for example. But the things that they have given us some fairly concrete proposals for mostly positive in my view. So, touched already on the definition of personal information. And the reason that that is so important is because that's the threshold legal definition. All of the privacy obligations on organisations hang off when they're handling personal information. So, we see a lot of argument about whether a particular piece of data meets this threshold legal definition of personal information or not, because if it doesn't, an organisation can say, Oh, we don't need to comply with the privacy principles in the Act. So, actually clarifying what's within scope in that definition is really important. So, they've grappled with that. They've said, as Lauren mentioned, inferred data is in online identifiers, information that can individuate people. So, be able to distinguish one person from another, such as your online behaviour. So, sort of pattern data, location data, all of that is within scope as part of this proposal. There's also a proposal to beef up. The definition of consent, we've already got this in guidance from the privacy regulator, but the proposal is to put it into the letter of the law itself to say when an organisation is relying on someone's consent, what you need to achieve that consent is needs to be voluntary, informed, specific, current, and it needs to be an unambiguous kind of affirmation. So putting that in law, but also at the same time saying, well, we don't really want to rely on consent all the time There's a whole bunch of routine business practices that you shouldn't need to ask people's consent for. But the sort of flip side of that is the proposal is to add a new overarching fair and reasonable test over practices that collect, use or disclose personal information. So, if you think of that as a bit like a filter or a lens that will sit over all activities. So, you have to, as an organisation, meet that fair and reasonable test before you can do anything else. And uh, my understanding is you can't ask your consumers, your customers, your citizens, whoever, to consent away the requirement that it be fair and reasonable in the first place. So I think that in itself will go a long way towards addressing some of the weaknesses in the current Act. And it will give something people to hang on to if they want to make a complaint, for example, and say, look, it was just not fair that you collected my information in this covert manner, or it's not fair that you were collecting information about children in order to market to them, for example.
0: Before you continue, just on that personal information, the definition of personal information, Anna, if this lands, what will companies not be able to do if this new definition of personal information includes device IDs? geolocation data. What does that the implications are in in a marketing and targeting context, which is clearly where you know we sit with it with this with our MI3s audience. What could that mean? What could they not do?
2: So the rules about what they can and can't do are still in the privacy principles themselves. So this is just the question about whether there will be rules at all. So the rules let's say applying that fair and reasonable test to whether or not you can collect or use someone's information, companies will now need to think about, they'll need to apply that decision making to online behavioural tracking, for example, or pulling together things into your customer profiling, making decisions about how we profile our customers, how we market to them, how we spend our advertising dollar, all of that will need to go through this fair and reasonable filter. So in the past, the organisations, the companies might have said, oh, if we don't know who the customer is, that Facebook knows, but we don't know who they are, we don't need to worry about privacy. Because, you know, there was this assumption that just because an organisation didn't know who someone was, they couldn't possibly do them privacy harm, that assumption no longer holds true. So, the law is kind of catching up with the online world. We know that individuals can be tracked online, targeted for advertising, targeted for misinformation campaigns. Too many of those kind of behaviors have escaped regulatory action because to date they've been able to say, well, we didn't know who the person was at the other end of that IP address that we were targeting, therefore our privacy obligations don't exist. That's the big change.
0: Yes. Uh, anything else in that key observations in the in the in the Privacy Act discussion paper, Anna?
2: The one extra thing I would mention is the discussion papers also grappling with, but not yet landed on exactly how to fix the problem of particular high risk practices so part of this is around children's data some of it's around new forms of data that you know we didn't really think about 20 30 years ago would be particularly privacy invasive issues like location geolocation data for example and practices like automated decision making so it's highlighted a few different practices or types of data and said, we're going to have to have some tougher risk management based rules for organisations handling that type of data or doing that kind of activity. But they haven't yet landed on, do we make the companies get consent to do those things or do we do some other thing like make them jump through sort of privacy risk management hoops? before they're allowed to use that data or or do that practice. So that's one of the questions that's still open for further discussion, you know, so the call for consultation will touch on those issues in more detail.
0: Peter Leonard, we've talked about the Privacy Act so far, Also, this other part, which is called the Online Privacy Code, which could be quite significant for social media companies, significant implications for social media companies, but also rewards and loyalty programs, data brokering services, et cetera. The Attorney General named some of them like Quantium, Axiom, Experian, Nielsen. Give us your sense first on, on, well, just break down a little bit perhaps on the Online Privacy Code. What's that in relation to the Privacy Act? And then, Peter, your overall sense, is this what you expected? You've been waiting with bated breath for this to land for months, and it's finally happened.
3: Well, we knew that this bill was in drafting from back in, I think it was April, when the AGD appeared before Senate Estimates and I think for the first time confirmed that they were cooking up a bill that would address two things, the announcements that the government had made about increasing penalties under the Privacy Act to bring them in line with Australian consumer law. My recollection is that announcement was made in 2019, so it's hardly new news and query why it's taken this long. And the second thing that was then discussed was a requirement for social media organisations to develop a code of practice that would, in essence, address requirements for greater transparency by social media platforms as to how they went about complying with their obligations under the Privacy Act. Now, somewhere between that discussion in Senate Estimates and today, we also, the bill has been expanded to cover so-called data brokerage services defined in such broad terms that I'm actually not sure how to interpret who is not a data brokerage. I invite people to read section 6W2 and tell me what on earth it means, and also include so-called large digital platforms that have more than two and a half million end users in Australia. So in essence, what the bill says is, as well as complying with your obligations under the Privacy Act, you've got to develop a code which goes into detail about the disclosures that you will make and the transparency of your disclosures in respect of your acts and practices and if you don't come up with it fast enough then the commissioner is empowered to develop a code and impose it on you so in that sense it reflects the approach that the government elected to take with the news bargaining code and for that reason, might be not unexpected. As I say, the unusual element is that somewhere along the road, this expanded beyond coverage of social media platforms to include so-called data brokerage services, whatever they are, and these other large online platforms.
0: So essentially, the moment, it's up to industry and companies to do something about it, and if they don't, it'll be forced on them by, by sort of a, a, a government authority of some sort. What's your reading overall then, Peter, from both the Privacy Act and the Online Privacy Code? Is this what you expected? Is it going to have any sort of material impact, do you think, on how businesses, enterprise, do what they do now with their data, with customer data, buying in first-party, third-party data, tracking, all those things? Is there a a material impact, do you think, here on how business is doing what it does now currently?
3: I think it should be. We should be clear as to what is being proposed here. What is being proposed is beefed up GDPR. And what it does is remove some of the silliness of GDPR and the privacy directive around cookie consents and uh, some of the other elements within GDPR that were recently criticised by the UK government in its review of UK GDPR.
0: That includes things, Peter. Sorry, that includes things like consent fatigue. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about here?
3: That's right. But what it then does is super-add these other elements which Anna and Lauren have referred to, and which I would have thought, as privacy advocates and consumer protection advocates, they should be very happy with what has been proposed. The super-added elements include proposals as to no-go zones, high levels of requirements as to transparency of privacy affecting acts and practices, including in respect of online behavioural advertising and other forms of profiling, new provisions relating to so-called higher risk profiling, which reflect some of the current proposals in the European Parliament, but haven't yet found their way fully into GDPR. And all of that in the Australian context does create some real potential exposures for businesses, particularly in respect of digital advertising practices, because each time there is a requirement for higher levels of transparency as to disclosures, particularly in relation to highly technical processes, such as use of online identifiers, online tracking codes, that may not be associated with individuals it's very hard to make those disclosures without leaving something out and explaining them in a way that they are capable of comprehension applying the standard that they have to be comprehensible to a person of below average literacy so organizations as these transparency requirements are cranked up and expanded even if consent is not required there is significant jeopardy created through the potential for an organisation to get it wrong, to make it incomplete, and that of itself creates exposures under Australian consumer law as well as under Privacy Act. And as well, we have the new element taken from Canada of the Fairness and Reasonableness Test, which I think is probably quite a good test to add to the Act, But when you have fairness and reasonableness coupled with a high level of transparency required as to disclosures, there's real jeopardy created for organisations in their privacy-affecting acts and practices, and we might expect, therefore, to see significant winding back of privacy-affecting acts and practices by organisations, even though they're not subject to expanded consent requirements.
0: I know both Anna and Lauren have, have talked to the fairness and reasonable test, but just for that, that is in and around the secondary use or, or the use of data, for uh, individual's data full stop. Is that what we're talking about here in terms of fairness and reasonable?
3: That's right. So it's an overlay test, not only in respect of secondary purposes, but also the primary purpose. And as Anna says, as it's envisaged, it can't be contracted away.
0: Can I just get your well? There's two things you said there, which are, which is interesting. In some cases, you're saying that these proposed amendments or updates to the Act will put us ahead of Europe's GDPR legislation. That's what I think you said. Did am I putting words in your mouth there?
3: No, absolutely. I mean, if you add together the elements of the fairness and reasonable te- reasonableness test, no-go zones, the level of transparencies that is required, particularly but not only of data brokers, whatever they might be, and social media organisations, large digital platforms, and potentially, when these proposals are enacted, other organisations, that would create a higher level of obligation and restriction than is currently the case under GDPR.
0: Uh, Quickly, Peter, what is a no-go zone?
3: So a no-go zone addresses, for example, advertising directed at children. So the concept is you identify activities that are considered sufficiently high risk that they either should be prohibited altogether or you require an organisation to undergo a specific impact and risk assessment because it's regarded as a high risk activity.
0: Got it. Now, I just want to get you as well on this definition, the changes in the definition of personal information, things like identifiers and even geolocation tracking this could mean that that couldn't happen or, in, or there are some instances so there's so many media companies for instance that use tracking and location data to start in, in a certain time of day and target them with appropriate messages does that mean that's that will be that will end Peter so broadly a much
3: no it will not be prohibited but a much higher level of transparency disclosures as to these practices will be required and there are proposals around the direct marketing provisions which would have the effect not that consent is required but accompanying those disclosures would be a requirement that organisations notify individuals of their opportunity to opt out of those practices. So in other words, there would be more clear disclosures up front as to what is happening and then an ability for individuals to opt out from direct marketing using those kinds of individuating practices.
0: Got it. Dan Stinton, you've heard all the, I love to use the word policy wonks just because it sounds great, but these, the specialists in and around this area, you've heard them sort of lay out their initial thoughts. What do you make of this for advertising and marketing? Do you sense as a media player that there are significant changes going to go through the advertising system as a result of these, an early read on this?
4: Yeah, I think so. Although I think it is worth acknowledging that the industry is already moving in this direction because of probably the halo effect if you like of of GDPR and the California privacy regulation as well. I mean I think the key thing that our industry needs to understand is what I think everyone has touched on previously and that's the definition of what is personal information is going to become much broader. I just want to take a step back and make sure everyone understands the reasons why this is important because there's effectively I mean Anna touched on this but I just want to expand on it if I could. I mean there's effectively our industry has largely operated on the premise that you can collect as much consumer data as you want, as long as you can't re-identify an individual. The problem is, is that that's only one of the potential harms. Probably the more significant harm is that individuals can be individuated, if you like, to use the terms that I think everyone has used so far. And that means putting them into advertising segments or cohorts where they can be unfairly discriminated against. So, I mean, to give you just one sort of example of this, you could negatively target people who have an interest in smoking cessation as one sort of example where you can see where this could be used uh, for nefarious purposes. So what our industry, our industry is largely operated, I think, as long as you can't re-identify someone, you're fine. I think what's quite clear from these proposed changes is that that's no longer the case. And so everyone's going to have to really rethink the way that they operate. Although, as I said at the start, most of us are going in this direction anyway, certainly in the Guardian's case, I mean, we are subject to GDPR, so we've been operating in this environment for some time. I mean, just a few other points, if I could, Paul. I mean, we are broadly supportive of these changes as we've been able to understand them in the, in the few days since they've dropped. But what I like about it is is this broadening of definition of personal information, that's long overdue and it will bring just that one change alone will bring Australia's Privacy Act uh, up to sort of adequacy, if you like, with GDPR and, and others around the world. We really like the fair and reasonableness test for the collection of data. It was also part of our submission to the AG's office on this. I mean, what we're hoping is that what that will mean that if if a consumer can realistically or reasonably expect that you're going to be collecting data on them for a specific purpose, you don't need to burden them with these annoying consent banners, which are sort of littered around the internet at the moment in the wake of GDPR, and, and that's for the good. And to give you a sense of this, I mean, I think it's probably reasonable to use the Guardian as an example. It's probably reasonable that a consumer who comes to the Guardian would expect that we are going to see what they're reading and put them into an advertiser, like an auto-intenders category or a travel-intenders category or whatever else. And therefore, the need for us to ask for consent in that circumstance, given that there is no material risk of consumer harm, goes away. And that's a, that's a really good thing. Just another couple of very really quick points, if I could. We also like the tightening of the purpose limitations test. And what that means is, is that it will be harder for secondary purposes to take place. So, what that means is it will be harder for, as one example, consumer credit card purchases to be used for the purposes of targeted advertising on a publisher website. We think that is for the good. I think others might disagree with me on that, but we think that is, most consumers would think that is a pretty unreasonable use of their consumer data. And I think it's important to view this also in the context of the data separation components of the HC's ad tech report, because I think these two things in concert will have a really significant impact on curbing what is the data arms race and stopping everyone basically trying to track everything you do online for the purposes of building up a huge profile about you that can be used for a whole bunch of ends that the consumer wouldn't expect. So we're really in favour of that as well. And the last point I'd make, which I think at this point we're unclear of, unclear on, is that the the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, I think they've sort of hinted at this but haven't said it explicitly, what is critical is that that office is given appropriate resources to be up for the fight. Because one of the problems that we've seen with GDPR is that we just have, have not had enforcement of it to determine whether or not it's actually doing its job or not. And so it's really critical that this regulatory change also comes with increased funding for the OAIC, because I think if without that, we're not going to see a, a huge amount of change or, or people will be able to get away with what they're doing now.
0: Lauren, I want to go to you on that because we talked about this a bit earlier. Enforcement, exactly Dan's point, GDPR's got a lot of conceptual frameworks that said you must do this, but nothing's really happened in enforcing breaches or catching breaches really yet. Is that what do you want to see and how that plays out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with Dan more. A well-funded and well-resourced enforcement agency is just critical as part of this. And there has been some suggestions there for an industry-funded model to come forward and ways for cost recovery to occur as well. So I do think this is a big part of the story. I think the other thing that's really clear to us is that it really can't be put all on consumers' shoulders to basically pick up when companies are misusing data and even using data in a way that might not align with the consent that's been provided. And that really responsibility needs to lie with the regulator because consumers simply will not have the expertise, the level of insight or ability to even actually get that information out of the businesses themselves, which is why having a regulator who is well resourced and experienced in how to do that and assess whether data has been used in line with something which is fair and reasonable or in line with the consent that's actually been provided. It's so important that the regulator really steps up their role there.
0: Anna and Peter, your views on so the penalties and punishment from breaches, what could they or do? is there any proposal on what what that looks like, what the costs could be or what the recriminations could be for breaches?
2: Part of this is in the online privacy bill, which is proposed to come forward ahead of the discussion paper or the reforms to come out of the discussion paper on the Privacy Act. So, there is absolutely a proposal to beef up the penalties and bring the privacy law penalties in line with Australian consumer law. So, we're looking at fines that will, it depends in part on the size of the organisation, but something more like $10 million or 10% of turnover or an account of profits.
0: So, that's sufficient for you, Dan, to behave yourself, I imagine. Uh, Yeah, I
4: don't think we're the problem, Paul, uh, with great respect, but it, it certainly is hopefully sufficient to enable some of the people out there that might be uh, making the most of the currently lax regulatory environment to
3: stop some of the uh, more nefarious behaviour, yeah. (laughs) If I could just come in there quickly, I agree with Dan and and Lauren about the need for a, a properly resourced regulator who can take action. One interesting element, though, in the discussion paper is a proposal that individuals would have a right of direct action to enforce the provisions of the Act. And if you think about how that might operate together with class action provisions and increased potential exposure to penalties, that could be quite a powerful disincentive on organisations engaging in excessive privacy Acts. So I do think that it's not only the ability of the regulator to fine and the Resourcing of the regulator so it is not a toothless tiger, as it were. The direct right of action is an important potential additional constraint, restraint on excessive privacy practices.
0: Peter, is your sense then that the the lack of enforcement that's happened around GDPR, what we're seeing here, will be more have more teeth, more active than what we've seen in Europe?
3: Not unless the regulator is appropriately resourced. I mean, the regulator got a bit more money to deal with the torrent of notifiable data breaches, but has barely been able to put their head above the water of their day-to-day workload, let alone engaging in significant enforcement actions. So there is a need for better budgeting, better allocations to enable the regulator to do its job.
0: We'll wrap this up because I could keep going and I'll probably get in trouble. So, so starting with you, Anna, just give us a sense of what's next and I'll ask each of you sort of what your expectations and hopes are for where this all lands in what time frame. But, uh, Anna, what happens now?
2: Well, it's interesting that we've got now these parallel kind of processes. So the online privacy bill could, in theory, get into parliament ahead of the next election, whereas the broader review of the Privacy Act I'd be extremely surprised if we see a bill, let alone an act, before an election. I think it'll be really interesting to see whether debate on the online privacy bill actually spills over into discussion of the act review process. I think it could potentially get messy. Some aspects of the online privacy bill, which include things like age verification and controls on children accessing social media, will probably suck most of the oxygen out of the debate and could actually be a bit of a red herring instead of getting people to focus on the much more useful proposals, I think, in the discussion paper on the Privacy Act, which are about strengthening the Privacy Act for all parts of the economy, all sectors, all organisations, instead of just focusing on the big tech end of town.
0: Lauren, do you share those concerns and what do you hope happens next versus what is likely to happen?
2: I do agree with Anna on that.
1: I think that the really core... To addressing these strategic issues that are emerging is the Privacy Act review. And from our perspective, also reform of, of consumer law, the measures that would be complementary to this. That's really where the focus needs to be, mainly because the business models are shifting all the time. And so we do need something that will apply economy wide from our perspective. We're still working through how these two reforms actually interact with each other. And so, to be honest, we're still trying to unpack that because it seems that some aspects of the proposed bill, I still will loop back to the Privacy Act in some way. So it really does come to, we really hope the policy debate and focus is on actually getting the right settings in the Privacy Act.
0: So Peter, your sense on this, because we've talked in previous podcasts around some of the the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry reports going, we need the Privacy Act to land and the proposals before we can really think about what's going to happen with some of the, the ad tech inquiries and so forth. Are we going to go around in circles here? Or And what's your sense of how it plays out? Do you share Anna's view that some of it may get up before the next election, some of it won't?
3: Well, it'll be clear from my comments before that I'm not a big fan of the online privacy bill or why it's taken so long to land. But having seen it as it is now landed, It might actually be a useful point to break the discussion between regulation of large digital platforms and social media providers, which can be addressed through that online privacy bill, so that we can then get down to the much more detailed debate of how we address broader issues around management of personal information information. So although it is a bit of a distraction to have both land at the same time, it might actually be a good thing because it may enable a separation in the debate going forward that enables us to get the right focus around getting the Privacy Act right, rather than this turning into yet another opportunity for certain politicians to use tech platforms as a whipping boy.
0: I can't imagine who you're talking about there, Peter Leonard, but anyway, I'll, we, can, we can assume. Dan Stinton, your final thoughts, will there be, how do you think this will land uh, some of these implications for industry? Because for the media industry and marketing, because there are some, you know, if some of that stuff happens, there's some you know, seemingly big changes, particularly for the ad te- online advertising sector.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I'm going to echo what has largely been said. I think that the Privacy Act is the more important of these two initiatives, and I think we will see some political discussion around the online privacy bill. But I'm concerned, as I think Peter is, perhaps all of us are, that some of the definitions in that bill are problematic. certainly our focus. And I think the industry's focus really needs to be on the Privacy Act Review discussion paper, because that's where the substance is, or at least more substance, perhaps, if I could put it that way. Look, I think our industry just really needs to lean into this, that the fair and reasonableness test is a really welcome development, as I mentioned. I think what we need to work as an industry is helping to define what is fair and reasonable and making it clear so that our industry has some pretty clear guidelines which interoperate. operate. So I think our focus is going to be on sort of helping to put our perspective on that, if you like, into the discussion paper. I think submissions are due by the end of January. I would encourage anyone who's in our industry who, who also cares about this industry and you should, or this issue, and you should, if you operate in, uh, in digital advertising,
0: to also help steer this in the right direction. So Dan Stinton, Lauren Solomon, Anna Johnston, Peter Leonard, really helpful, instructive early take on what the hell's going to happen in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months and helped me to get my head around it, let alone the industry. So thanks for joining. Stay safe. And no doubt we'll be back for some more conversation on this. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free.